Hello, you're listening to the Statelessness and Exclusion Dialogues podcast, brought to you by the Institute on Statelessness and Inclusion. I'm your host, Andy Clark. In this podcast series, we're trying to better understand the link between structural discrimination and statelessness in the world today. We're looking at different themes, including the history of colonialism, patriarchy, state formation, xenophobia and racism, and digital ID and documentation. In the series, we speak to a diverse range of experts from around the world. In this episode, we explore the relationship between racism, xenophobia and statelessness stemming from the colonial period. Even though we tend to see the colonial times as a distant memory, some things that happens, but the effects are very much alive and very much visible and very much like affecting people's life on a day-to-day basis. Hi, my name is David. I'm a Toronto-based author. I uh, recently uh, published a memoir, Escape Menace Prison. Uh, other than that, I'm also an uh, active advocate for the Rohingya cause in Burma and other minorities in surrounding area. Xenophobia really, I think, gets at how we think about belonging, how we think about the nation, and the different ways we kind of construct insider and outsider status. I'm Tendaya Chume and I'm a professor of law at the UCLA School of Law and I'm the former United Nations Special Rapporteur on Contemporary Forms of Racism. Tendai, we're looking at the relationship between colonialism, racism, xenophobia and statelessness. Can you give us a brief example to kick off the conversation today? So thanks so much for having me. And I thought I would start off with just two statistics that I think really shed light on what we're going to be talking about today. So the UN Refugee Agency estimates that approximately uh, 10 million people across the globe are stateless. So we're talking about 10 million people. And when we think about these 10 million people, UNHCR tells us as well that 75% of them are minority groups, whether it's ethnic, religious, or racial minorities. And so you have 10 million people, 75% are minorities. And I think our conversation is trying to work through how this isn't an accident or a coincidence. And and statelessness is often the result of longstanding discrimination um, on the basis of people who are thought of as foreign. And what I'm really excited to get into with both of you is thinking about what it means to be foreign. How does that category get constructed? Um, What are the sensibilities we bring to that? Because I think that's a really important place to be anchored in. Okay, thanks. That's a great way to kick us off. Jaivet, can you give us a brief example? What does does this uh, mean to you? And do you have an example that can get the ball rolling? I think I can talk in the case of Burma, how uh, to just double down on what just Chandai mentioned, the statelessness was not something accidental, so not something of, a, even in the Burma case, not a policy failures that, that resulted into a statelessness of like a whole minority group, but rather something systematically built it up over the course of decades. And that eventually led to stateless with a rather in a gradual erosions rather than outright turning a statelessness overnight. Can you define xenophobia and how it relates to discrimination in general? Uh, for me, I see xenophobia more, uh, I often struggle to comparing between in the Western notions of xenophobia is most of a, someone from outside as if out of the country. But in the case of Burma, uh, the way xenophobia um, appear or 
tend to work is like how that outsider is actually inside the country made outsiders based on um based on cooked up fact or based on myth so to me when i see xenophobia in the case of burma i see it's as if making one's internal group as outsiders and using it as a, a scapegoat by various regime whenever it fitted them so it's vastly different between in the context of burma and in the context of more western countries and more in the notions of western ideas tendai how do you see it so it's it's interesting because you know Jaivet really sets up a framing that I think is essential when we're thinking about xenophobia. I'm I'm from Southern Africa. Right now I'm based in the United States and and in my UN role my work was global. So really thinking about these categories and how they shift in meaning all over the world is is so important. Xenophobia specifically, you know, there can be a dictionary definition that's that seems to associate xenophobia with prejudice or fear of others you know you're afraid of the outsider and it, it's characterized as this kind of personal irrational response in many ways of talking about the term but i think david's response re- really highlights how that category isn't just about personal preferences it's about senses of insider and outsider that are really political that are shaped by law that are shaped by history that are shaped by you know race religion belonging and and so i think i like to think of xenophobia as an intersectional category that that basically constructs foreignness on the basis of national origin ethnicity religion gender and so to give you some examples javed is is speaking about say um rohingya in myanmar and they have been in myanmar for many 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 generations but they are constructed as foreign and we will get into a conversation i think that will help us understand how that comes to be when i started out my legal career i was practicing in south africa where i was representing refugees and asylum seekers and there xenophobic discrimination targeted black africans so it was black south africans targeting black south africans and other non-white um non-nationals in the country so race was doing a lot of work but in a different and strange way you might think about recently here in the US at the southern border we had ukrainian um refugees or displaced people who were treated treated very differently from central american um uh migrants and refugees and so xenophobia really i think gets at how we think about belonging how we think about the nation and the different ways we kind of construct insider and outsider status uh, let's look at the role of colonialism in all of this because in the series the podcast series we're we're looking at the uh, role of colonialism so uh, jivet when we when we're talking about how others are created and how there is this line between belonging and not belonging um what's the relationship with colonialism do you think if we look at the at the in in the burma case i think the colonialism was not just foundation that's pretty much everything that gave birth to this whole insider outsiders uh notions of a group of people inside the country since the british came to, uh, british rules came to burma in late 1800s you know the this divide and divide and rules the has been the dominant strategy by the by the british rule which in turn created this in a country that's so ethnically diverse that was like a fueling ground when you divide and feed each other against uh this uh ethnic based nationalism sometimes even uh even the race doesn't matter as long as it's you have been able to put either on a 
religion or religion line on a slight skin tone, just a, a touch, uh, a shade lighter or a shade darker, and most often it is the race. So this divide and conquer rule that still has legacy today was pretty much the foundations of this inter-xenophobia inside Burma. So it has everything to do with it. A direct line, you're saying? Yeah, pretty much. Tandai, how do you see it? Sometimes people think about the influence of colonialism as having been erased at the point of independence. You know, countries that gain their independence in the past, that's the point that basically cuts off the influences of colonialism. And I think that kind of way of thinking about it really misses how colonialism shapes the very nature of the category of citizenship even today in post-colonial states and even in former colonial nations as well. So I keep coming back to my own personal experience, which is different from Javed's, but there's a lot of synergies here. I'm half Zambian, half Zimbabwean. The very nature of those borders, the category Zambian, the category Zimbabwean is a colonial artifact. And in many parts of the world, including in uh, Burma, when we're thinking about India, Pakistan, you have laws in place that determine citizen and non-citizen straight out of a colonial ordering. So when we're thinking about the influence of colonialism, it really is, to my mind, about calling attention to how very fundamental categories that we think of as neutral actually have embedded in them hierarchies that give some people rights and other people rights. And, and in Jaivet's uh, case, for example, we have a 1982 citizenship law that basically gives citizenship on the basis of ethnicity in ways that reproduce colonial hierarchies. And so I, I see a through line as well, even though I think it's important to highlight that colonialism is not maybe the only factor um, at play. How does this play into to statelessness then? Statelessness is basically being without a nationality. And you can think about how much attention there is in the media on refugees, for example. Those are people actually who have a nationality but are outside of their country and seeking protection. If you think of refugees as vulnerable, stateless people are one step over because there is no state to which they belong. And to be in that status, as I mentioned when I started out, most of the groups who are subject to statelessness are people who are racially, ethnically, and nationally marginalized. So discrimination is manifested or institutionalized in who has access to citizenship and who has nationality, and that direct link is in play. And I would add that gender is relevant here as well. We've talked about race and religion, but there are some countries in the world that still restrict the transmission of nationality um, to men, so that women who have children with foreign nationals and who are in circumstances where they aren't able to get the, the, the man's citizenship, you'll have children who end up being stateless. So discrimination, I would say, plays a very big role in who ends up being placed outside of the protection of any state in, in, in the world. And Jaivet, how, how do you see that? I mean, the role of the statelessness in all of this and what we've been talking about? Up until COVID-19, I, I used to use this metaphor of statelessness as being as if like you're an orphan. You have no one to turn to. You have no one to look up to. You basically have nowhere to turn to in the case of in a, in a world where belonging to a state citizenships mean everything from movement to even uh, opening a bank account, like just for basic day-to-day -day needs. 
and then after COVID-19, I, I, I changed that metaphor to now it's not just orphans anymore. It's become like a, you're a crippled person because like with the access to uh, access to vaccine heavily, heavily restricted by a state monitored or like a state uh, supervised, uh, at least in the case of Burma and some surrounding other Southeast Asia country where the access to vaccine was only through a state. And we have seen similar things even in Canada here where the citizen gets first priority, then the rest followed. And if you're a stateless, even in the in the in the emergency crisis like COVID nineteen, you have nowhere to access to these vital vaccines, vitals, other healthcare need. So it's not just orphan anymore. You become a complete crippled person who is unable to access the basic survival's uh, healthcare. Okay, interesting metaphor, and I think that's that's very clear to to anybody listening. You know that. Uh, not having the nationality, being stateless, is is something which defines your whole life in so many ways. And and at, at the beginning, Tendai, you 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 sort of mentioned something which was really interesting about you know who gets to belong and who doesn't get to belong. Um, let's talk about that a little bit more than in in the light of you know our topic today, which is racism, xenophobia, and and the kind of echoes from the colonial past. Um, how real is that conversation still about who belongs and who doesn't belong and how strong are the historical ties then, Tendai? Anywhere in the world, I would venture to say, I think these questions around belonging are really complex and, and layered. And I'll, I'll give you two examples from um, the African continent. My first professional work on statelessness was actually with a community that's called the Nubian community in, in Kenya. And the Nubian community to this day are treated as foreigners, as outsiders. And they came to uh, Kenya from uh, Sudan, where they were deployed by the British during British colonial occupation of the, the region. And they fought on behalf of the, uh, the, the British during the Second World War. And at the end of the, of the war, the Nubians were prohibited from returning to Sudan. And the British colonial government in Kenya refused to acknowledge them as citizens. And so they were classified as a foreign tribe. And that classification then continued into post-colonial Kenya as well, so that they, to this day, remain considered foreign and their capacity to integrate, to become part of society, continues to be shaped by that historical legacy in very real ways. I mentioned earlier about how, you know, the, the two countries that I'm from, Zambia and Zimbabwe, those borders are colonial artifacts. There are many um, nations and, and ethnic groups that have lived and been connected across those borders in ways that mean they speak similar languages. They have similar, you know, genealogies. They have so much that binds them together, but then they're given different nationalities and those nationalities then become what's salient in determining who's an insider and who's an outsider. And of course, all of these things are complicated by things like economic precarity. So one of my UN reports was thinking about, you know, xenophobic discrimination, foreignness discrimination, and how oftentimes there's this sense that Outsiders are coming in and they're making us more economically vulnerable and that becomes part of the justification. And I think what's important there is thinking about how even economic precarity and all of those categories are structured by some of the same things we're fighting against when we're thinking about xenophobia. So to make to give you a concrete example, 
when we think about South Africa now, where the most socioeconomically marginalized are also the ones who often um, are involved in xenophobic backlash against foreigners, that dynamic is one that has roots in apartheid and colonial era, era laws that basically pitted migrant workers against South Africans in ways that I think we continue to see echoes of in the in the present. And so it's such a foreignness and the work that it does to determine who is inside and who is outside is, is really complicated. And having attention to the role that laws and historical frameworks play, I think is really crucial because we need that nuance if we're going to move forward. And Javet, what's your take on that? I mean, how, how do you see that? Uh, a slight different path, but I think pretty much the same ending. Uh, in some cases, in the case of, for example, Rohingya, the statelessness was not so clearly defined, but over the time it became that way. For example, in my grandparents' generation, they were complete full citizen. And then when my parents' generation, that was reduced to, uh, to a partial citizens. And then in my generations, it became a complete stateless. And then this all has their root back in the colonial era when the Buddhist majority allied during the World War II, when Buddhist majority allied with the Japanese forces and the minority Muslims, and especially the Rohingya allied with the British. This, uh, after the independence, this was whoever allied with the enemy were like created this myth of uh, outsiders. And then over the course of a few decades, this was uh, the myth was not just only built, but also re keep reinforcing by the post-colonial governments of Burma. And then that essentially became the official narrative. This became the common knowledge in a country where the media and the knowledge is so strictly regulated and sanctioned. That was pretty much that the making of outsiders and the reinforcements, the reinforcing of that myth was uh, what basically the regime in Burma was able to capitalize on and then like fuel the genocide, which eventually burst into outright uh, genocide. But yes, all take back its roots to how the colonial divided era gave birth to this otherwising having a scapegoat to blame to. And then uh, not just regimes, different waves of uh, ethnic nationalists also make use of that like sometimes that otherwising stay stay below the radar but that sentiment is never gone and whenever there is a violence or whenever there is a nationalist right wings like some sort of uh, ultra movement this arose like they never fail to capitalize to tap onto that otherwising sentiments that uh that has been lingering around in the back end somehow since the colonial era and never disappeared People listening might think, you know, the colonial era is something from history. It's a long time ago. It's finished. So, so you know, why are we talking about the impact uh, in such a way of colonial times? I mean, what would you say to them, Javet? Pretty much what's happening today are still a curse of that first initial dividing, initial uh, rules and strategies used in the colonial era. And then uh, the subsequent governments, the subsequent regimes used to capitalize on it, somehow even reinforce it. So that, even though we tend to see the colonial times as a distant memory, some things that happens, but the effects are very much alive and very much visible and very much like affecting people's life on a day-to-day -day basis. 
So it's ne the effect never left. And, and that can be traced to the genocide of the Rohingya in, in, uh, in Burma right. and Myanmar. Pretty much. I was going to jump in and say, I think this is, you know, this point that you're making, Andy, is right. People, and I mentioned this earlier, people think of colonialism as in the past and as done. And in addition, they think that to, to speak about colonial legacies is to be insisting that the only hierarchies that can exist are ones that divide white people and non-white people just because of the nature of the colonial project. But I think what Jivet's example really highlights is that you know, citizenship itself becomes a technology that results in entrenching racial and ethnic hierarchies long after even the colonial authorities that introduced that technology are in the region. And I highlight that because we think that the only way that belonging can be managed is through the institutions that we have right now. When we think of the borders of the nation state, when we think about the meaning of citizenship, these are fairly modern ways of arranging the way that people relate to each other and the way that power, ethnicity, economy are arranged, right? And even in a place like Myanmar or wherever else you might be, there are centuries of different imperial projects, different ways of understanding what belonging means and does. But what you see with the transition from colonialism to independence is that you know the categories that are in place, the nation state, its borders, citizenship, then become tools for those who are coming into power to then advance their own programs of hierarchy and domination as well. So to my mind, to say that we're dealing with colonial legacies is also to say that we have ways of understanding belonging that come out of a colonial period and continue to reinforce hierarchies that are unjust and that we really need to address, including by rethinking the very fundamental categories we're working with. So to me, the injustices that confront stateless people can't be, confront, can't be separated from the injustices of citizenship and even nation-state borders at a really fundamental level as well. No, I wanted to say uh, what Tendai mentioned, like some of the, some of the power that inherent uh, even post-independence, uh, some of the colonial tools were never actually abandoned, but sometimes like use, uh, use and I'm looking for a right term, like develop, double down on those tools actually. In Burma, there is a law, this is from all the way from British era, a law called vacant fallow and virgin land management law, which is like any land that is vacant or virgin became the subjects of the crown at the time. And this, law also and under sections of that law has uh, this of whenever some property got on fire that became automatically belonged to the state this loss has been exactly the unchanged pretty much unchanged from those colonial times only you would have seen in english now it is in burmese that's pretty much the only difference where used in confiscating the lands from the rohingyas and that's why we have seen so many fire when the, the whole genocide was happening. Killing people alone was not alone. When they set the places, the villages on fire without any occupant on it, that land got subjected to that uh, Virgin Fallow land management law and then became a state property. And when you have nowhere to return back to, this just solidify your statelessness. So it's like some of the, some of the tools that, uh, that were not just abandoned even post-independence, but actually were used 
over and over again by the successive regimes. Tendai, have you come across that in your experience as well, that sort of direct laws on the books which are still being used to discriminate? Absolutely. I mean, you know, there was a recent report that came out from the uh, Center on uh, Immigration Law and Policy at UCLA Law School that looks at how in the U.S. deportation laws and a number of immigration enforcement laws that disproportionately impact um, racially marginalized groups have direct racist origins in the U.S. settler colonial project. And, and so laws that were motivated in the 19th century as explicitly being about excluding racial and ethnic um, minorities or specific groups are to this day still being used and upheld by the Supreme Court, notwithstanding their racist origins and their ongoing racist um, effects in the present. So when you look at immigration law in particular, and you look at the law of borders, even just the category illegal immigrant or even immigrant, you know, the first definition of an immigrant that you see, for example, in, in, in Australia, this is before it even becomes Australia, is people of a Chinese, you know, people of Chinese origin. So it was a racially specified group that was targeted at a particular country, a particular kind of ethnicity. That's what it meant to be an immigrant. Whereas everybody else coming from, say, the British Empire, who was non-Indigenous, was not considered an immigrant. So, so much of our machinery and technology that we use to manage immigration and borders is rooted in colonial pasts that have never really been destabilized. You could be forgiven for thinking this is a kind of insurmountable problem. So where do we go from here? How do we kind of redress the balance or tackle this or put wrongs right? I'm not sure what the right way of, of saying it is, but you know, yeah, where do we go from here? I, I have so much to say about this question. I'm going to try and rein myself in. And, and Andy, I think your, your framing is helpful. You're saying, you know, listening to all of this, we might get a sense that the problems are insurmountable. What, where do we go from here? And I want to begin by saying what is insurmountable is itself kind of a, a social construction. If you think about how humans have gone to the moon, we have self-driving cars, there's all forms of, forms of technological and even social innovation that previously were inconceivable. So I want to name the inconceivable as being a priority way of how we, we move out of the current situation. And to illustrate this, you know, I've been thinking about um, climate change. My final report as UN Special Rapporteur was on um, climate catastrophe and just the ecological crisis and thinking about how in the in the context of climate change there's going to be entire nations that will be without a state and what we think of as statelessness right now is compounding and will be compounded by what we see coming down the line and when we see that the solutions that we have in mind can't be to my mind about legal reform in a small way or additional protections in a small way for people who are stateless. I think what's urgent is really rethinking the nature of the state and the nature of the way that people enjoy and experience human rights. So I think what is urgently required is reordering the international order and essentially thinking about ways of connecting with each other that are more sustainable for the planet and that result in forms of connection that aren't tied to previous systems. So this is all sounding very abstract, but to me, I think the urgency is rethinking citizenship, rethinking the nation state, 
and using that as the baseline for how we move forward. And feel free to push me on that, but the solutions have to be inconceivable to us at present because what we're trying to overcome is really fundamental. Javet, what do you to yeah, what uh, insurmountable problem? Where do we go from here? I mean, Tandai was talking about we need to be able to conceive uh, different ways forward, but in reality, in 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 practice, how do we do that? I wish I have an answer. I wish <laughs> I wish I have an uh, easy, clear answer, but um, I don't. The only wish I have is like uh, this is not a time we should be focusing solving man-made problems. Essentially, which is this case, we should be focusing on you know rather bigger like natural natural climate change and other bigger problems than fidgeting with these man-made problems. But again, I don't have a clear answer where we go there, but I have a question uh, which kind of always in the back of my mind. It seems at least to me impossible to fix from the inside, like lobbying or like trying to go and fix uh, the law, the citizenship law in Burma sounds like almost impossible in the immediate future. And then in such cases, how do you try to solve it from more of an international perspective, from more of an outside of the state and on my, probably on a higher level than the just internalized citizenship law, which kind of say yes or no to your stateless or not. That's something that's always in the back of my mind, but I'm not exactly uh, equipped or knowledgeable around like how that could work in a real world scenario. And other examples, real world examples, success stories that we can look to that, you know, can give kind of uh, hope or positive uh, energy, you know, when looking at this. Uh, Tendai, you said, you know, I could push you. So exactly. So I am and I'm also going to do the maybe the, the thing that is not ideal, which is is to resist to resist a little more your provocation, Andy, but to just build on something that Javed is saying, because I think he's I think. What he's articulating is something I'm trying to articulate as well. And I think there's practical recommendations that come from this, right? So if we think about post-colonial states like Burma and others, oftentimes people who are subject to the authority of the state have no real way of, through the state, changing the situation. So you're talking about how do we amend the citizenship law in Burma and how difficult a prospect that is um, for people who are subject to those laws. And if you think about former colonial nations or kind of the imperial powers of our time, we're thinking about the US, there it's a, it's a, it's a different kind of conversation, right? They are projecting their power in ways that can result in exacerbating statelessness. We might think about conflict in Syria. We might think about Iraq. We might think about places where stateless populations have increased because of military intervention. And I'm highlighting this because I think it's important to think about states themselves as being vehicles that make it difficult to overcome the problem of statelessness. Because as we've been describing, statelessness is an, is an output of the kind of state making that is the baseline. So the question becomes, how do people who are subject to states form associations that move beyond the state and build power beyond the state in ways that can shift that. And that to me is about social movements and it is about thinking about how you build, build social movements transnationally that don't rely on the state. So coming to your demand for a concrete example, Andy, I have in mind here thinking about, you know, right now I would say there is a transnational movement to fight climate injustice. 
and people are connecting across borders to think about innovative ways of reordering the global economy. Part of that conversation, I think, should involve people who are advocating on behalf of stateless people, because part of the project of solving the climate crisis, to my mind, is solving the crisis of the state. And so the point I'm making is I see an urgency and a an hopefulness in movement building across issue areas that have previously been siloed because what we're pushing for is a new international order. So counterintuitive as this might be, anybody who's listening, who is compelled at the problem of statelessness, to my mind, should be thinking about how they can join or support a community-based or movement-based organization that is fighting for a more just order in some of the ways that I've been talking about. I think that that's really, really important. And you can also, you know, do things like donating to organizations that are working on behalf of stateless people. I think that work is important. I think ISI, who is sponsoring this podcast, is doing really transformative work to advance the work of of, of the rights of stateless people. And taking a look at their website will give people, I think, a range of ways that they can also be involved um, that are maybe less rethinking world order than I've been describing. Jaivet, what what's your view on what Tandai has just said? I mean, do you share that kind of vision that, that, you know, if people come together transnationally, there might be some way of kind of redressing this balance or looking at it in a new way and maybe moving forward in different yeah, ways? Yeah, I think that's one way of uh, probably the only way that I learn is uh, is if you can fix from inside, they're going to be away from outside. And I wonder... Uh, what uh, what you were mentioning, Tendai, uh, regarding building up this movement, building up this awareness by through organizations, if there could be a norm developed, like in this international arena, where, like any other movement that has been built on, for example, climate change, even though some of some of the countries that cli- actions again that harm that accelerate climate change might not be codified in law, but once that become a norm, like we can kind of uh, force maybe uh, via some soft power, soft influences, like force. Uh, and the con- countries also, uh, as we have seen with climate change, they can kind of shy away to go once that become the norm. Maybe making the statelessness uh, is an unacceptable idea, is especially in this age of where if you don't belong to a state, you can't even move out of a out of an artificial borderline. That the idea of a statelessness is an unacceptable idea, unacceptable things. Uh, if such things can, such an idea could uh, could be fueled to become a norm in the international arena, then maybe a way to force countries like Burma from the outside. Also, on a much lower. Uh, I wouldn't say lower, probably much a smaller scales uh, to immediately relieve. There has been some work by the World Bank where, for example, the statelessness started to define people's day-to-day life, for example, can't open a bank account because they won't be issued ID because they, they won't be issued ID because they don't belong to the state. Uh, and, uh, for the, in the Rohingya case, I think there is a, there is a project going on, ID4D, ID4D, I believe that's the correct acronym, right? So where the UN itself provided a kind of ID that's allowed uh, the Rohingyas to open bank account, which kind of elevate their livelihood on a day-to-day basis on a much, much smaller scale, but it's still something to do. 
maybe in the immediate future there could be some uh, maybe a, a travel document for stateless people uh, which I was subject to for for entire five years uh, uh, and you know David you're making me think that the other side of that again to get as you know even more concrete and granular as Andy is encouraging us to do um, I think the other side of that is thinking about places where there's been a move to just reduce the number of contexts where an ID is required. And so this, a lot of these innovations happen at the local level, for example, where there's been cities and, and communities that say, you know, in order to access healthcare, we're actually just going to say you don't need an ID so that healthcare isn't tied to identification and that means that you have a more inclusive process. And this is what I'm describing when I say we have to be remaking the way our societies work. You know, I think you're right to say including who has access to identification is one urgent move and, and definitely helps people who are in, de in desperate situations. And that's important to keep in mind. But what would it mean to organize our society so that IDs don't do the work that they do, especially because in so many contexts, IDs are doing new work they didn't do previously. And just a final question to both of you to kind of round things off. I mean, we've been talking about colonialism and how that still plays out very much today in xenophobia and racism in into who belongs and who doesn't and, and in many ways to who becomes stateless and who has access to rights and who doesn't have access to rights. So is a better understanding of all of that process essential uh you know, and will that pave the way forward to more solutions as as we go ahead? Is there enough understanding of the colonial links to current day uh, statelessness to start with? And, and will a better understanding of that then actually help? I think we need more knowledge and the we is going to be is going to shift and what kind of knowledge is needed is going to be shifted. But I'll give you the example of myself as I'm trained as a lawyer. I studied law and my work focuses on racial discrimination in the context of citizenship, nationality, all of these sorts of things. The way I was trained to understand borders, the way that I was trained to understand citizenship really made it difficult to understand the colonial origins and the ways in which these categories themselves are ones that have hierarchies embedded in them. And this is to say that the way we are taught, the way we think about these institutions requires so much undoing that building that understanding is crucial. So even before we get to problem solving in terms of creating new regimes, really being open and honest about the existing regimes and why they are a problem is essential. That work needs to happen because I think it's a foundation from which you then can diagnose in real ways and have solutions that come forward. So the kind of conversation we are having on this podcast, I would say, isn't necessarily characteristic of approaches to statelessness general, generally, one might say. And if it is, it hasn't been the case for a really long time. So I do think that the answer is no to your question. I don't think we understand the problem sufficiently. I think we need to deepen our understanding, communicate that that new understanding as widely as possible and have that be the basis for how we, we move forward. Javet, final I, thought from you? I, I back the, the undoing part uh, in the case of Burma. I think uh, oftentimes in my experience, when I found people focusing in the Rohingya statelessness, often tend to think the statelessness starts with the Burmese regime, often tend to think it started in 1982 citizenship law. 
uh, I've seen a lot of uh, commentaries and read materials where oh, the, the statelessness was the result of 1982 citizenship law. I think to really, that's kind of equivalent to treating the symptoms on the end, on the, on the end part. It's not going back to the root cause of it where it's originated. I think we definitely need more of undoings and diving deep to the root cause where it all began instead of treating the symptom and seeing it as a stateless and start with this law or with this regime kind of thing. Okay, thank you very much, both of you, for taking part in the podcast today. Thank you. Right, thank you. You've been listening to the Statelessness and Exclusion Dialogues podcast, brought to you by the Institute on Statelessness and Inclusion. The series examines different themes impacting statelessness, including the history of colonialism, patriarchy, state formation, xenophobia and racism, and digital ID and documentation. Today we were talking about the relationship between racism, xenophobia and statelessness stemming from the colonial period. Thanks go to our guests Tendai Achumi and Jaivet Elom. If you'd like to know more about the work of the Institute on Statelessness and Inclusion, then visit the website institutesi.org. Institutesi.org. I'm Andy Clark. Thanks for listening. <laughs>